0: Hi, I'm Stuart, and welcome to our podcast, The Moor You Know. Our podcast will be looking into how the manufacture of semiconductors interacts with our everyday life. Welcome to our podcast, The Moor You Know. Today's podcast is all about carbon capture and particularly shining a light on Bio, or as I should say, and hopefully my guests will be able to correct me if I'm wrong, uh, nature based carbon capture. I'm delighted to say, once again, we have a very special guest in Chris Jones, Henry Rossiter, and Gil Martin from Belmont Estates. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Could um, perhaps you give us a little bit of an insight into your roles at Belmont Estate and what Belmont Estate is? Gil? Uh, thank you for inviting me. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Um, I'm Gil Martin. I manage the Belmont Estate and I run all the activities that take place on the estate and they range from uh, nature recovery through to corporate partnerships, through to connecting the community and people back with nature, with food and with where it comes from.
0: The Belmont Estates are where?
1: Uh, So we're just outside of Bristol. Um, We are uh, wild and green and yet only a stone's throw from the Clifton
0: Suspension Bridge. Ah, right. And Henry, what what do you do?
2: Uh, thank you for having me and uh, so my name is Henry Rossiter uh, and I am the business development director for Belmont Estate so uh, like Gill I share responsibility um, for corporate partnerships at Belmont um, but I also uh, cover all things such as events uh, and also food production and, and ensuring that it's supplied into the local area and, uh, and local restaurants.
0: Also joining us on the panel today
3: is Dr. Chris Jones, um, also known as Chris Jones. Chris, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm the Environmental Solutions Business Development Manager for Edwards. So my role is to better understand uh, our industries and society's sustainability goals and then transfer those through to our business as a whole.
0: So Chris, carbon capture... Could I know we've talked about this before but just for any newcomers to our fabulous podcast and we've got very special guests and could you give us just a bit of background on general carbon capture storage and utilization
3: society we emit about 50 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent every year Net result of that is a gradual increase in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere about 76% of the carbon equivalent comes from carbon dioxide, a lot of it comes from energy, some of it from transport, some of it indeed from agriculture and forestry. But the uh, the idea is that as the amount of uh, CO two in the atmosphere goes up, so uh, the so the climate warms, and we're trying to target at one and a half degrees C. Uh, I think. That might be quite a struggle. That's what we're trying to, that's what we're trying to target. Um, if as we're emitting, we can all look to reduce our emissions. Uh, so one of the technologies that's been employed is uh, the capture of carbon dioxide. Two generic approaches, uh, one of which is at point of release, uh, and the other of which is uh, direct from atmosphere. And then there's a, a wide range of technologies that. Are yeah, adopted. I've
0: spent a lot of time researching, and something could go on forever yes, looking at did. all the different things. Gil, am I using the right terminology? One of the things we like to do on the podcast is it bio carbon capture or nature carbon capture? What's the best terminology, or are they both the same thing? No, so for us, it's it's definitely nature-based solutions. It's
1: broader as a subject than carbon but Mm -hmm. for the purposes of this conversation focusing in on carbon what we are interested in and we are uh, delivering on a site uh, that we own is nature based solutions delivering actually Uh, both sequestering carbon, drawing carbon down, atmospheric carbon through perhaps tree growth or or other mechanisms, and also carbon abatement, which is to stop the release of carbon from a degraded uh, land mass or or, um, a badly managed land peatland restoration or degraded peatland being one of the key examples.
0: Because we're both in the abatement business then, Mm -hmm. uh, with our abatement in the semiconductor industry and your abatement in nature. You just alluded to earlier on as well, it's more than just carbon capture. Could you give us a little bit of insight and you said you were a conservationist Mm. because i asked you earlier are you a scientist and you went no i'm a conservationist i mean what we think of scientists with dr jones sitting here (laughs) very knowledgeable but um um... yeah no absolutely and i and i'm probably
1: a number of things or none of any of these things Mm -hmm. but i could be a conservationist it could be a farmer could be a land manager Mm -hmm. or, or a businessman and um and i perhaps try and be all of those things. But one of the dangers that we're trying to avoid at Belmont is to oversimplify the the issue mm-hmm. and oversimplify the solution to the issue. So... Um uh, climate change being driven by greenhouse gas emissions, that, that's a reality. That's not something that's coming down the line. That's something we're experiencing yeah. now. But it is intrinsically interlinked with a series of other issues. The principal one that, that really resonates with us is biodiversity decline. And so they are one and the same issue, uh, connected uh, but distinct in different ways. Mm. And if you ignore one whilst trying to tackle the other with an over, overly binary uh Approach, then all we will do is is tackle one crisis whilst ignoring one emergency, and so they are they are completely interlinked. So nature based solutions help us tackle multiple issues at the same mm-hmm. time. So for example, um, uh, wetland habitats in the UK and actually further afield are one of our fastest disappearing habitats. They are home to a, a vast array of species that have spent millennia evolving. Uh, evolutionary niches and life cycles suited to an ephemeral wetland habitat, which is no longer there. We've lost 97% of our wetland habitats. Um, And when we say lost, what we really mean is dried out. And so we're suffering this biodiversity decline through loss of habitat. The resulting or the leftover degraded habitat is peatland, which has been... Uh, sequestering carbon very slowly but since the end of the last ice age so they represent a huge carbon store mm. as they dry out they emit carbon into the atmosphere so by rewetting them we're able to tackle multiple issues biodiversity decline and carbon capture being, being two at the mm. same time actually carbon abatement to be mm. precise
0: uh, Henry, interestingly you were talking about food production earlier on isn't a lot of the biodiversity loss due to our need to feed the population?
2: Um, vastly um, so how do you balance that? it's it's a really good question it's an interesting one in the fact that uh so if we look at a, a conventional farming method there's a roughly 10 to sometimes 18 applications of uh, herbicide pesticide uh, and additional nutrients that all go into uh, producing conventional wheat or barley or maize or any of the, sort of the, the crops that we imagine the issue with that is as you've just said it's uh it does lead to a, a vast biodiversity decline and that's uh, happened throughout the sort of you look at the data since the 70s we've lost uh, this is also additionally an, uh, a badger issue but we've lost 95% of all hedgehogs um, and biodiversity has continued to fall we are uh, according to the uh, RS you're not saying we're going to have to eat hedgehogs are you is that no, what you're saying no, you no, no to I was getting a bit worried All oh, right, I see you right there I'm getting a bit
0: worried there that we're going to eat hedgehogs no
2: no no, no. and I don't fancy myself uh, against the badger either way but uh, 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 yeah it's true we are, so out of the uh, all the countries and territories in the world, out of the 240, uh, England uh, is the seventh worst uh, country for biodiversity. Uh, for biodiversity. Uh, and Scotland isn't much better, they're at number 12. So as a, a nation, we are awful. Um, in terms of how do you balance it? It's a really, really good question because we are obsessed with uh, production and yield and getting as much uh, food from a particular patch of land that we mm-hmm. have in England. The issue is... is um, I suppose that must be the
0: same everywhere, though, so is it not, not just England? It'll be the same in all. Everyone wants food security in some way, though, isn't it? eh?
2: Yeah, very much so. And food is one of those things that if you don't have enough of it, water too, it creates war. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as a result of war, it actually creates uh, quite a lot of shortages as well. We've we've seen that perfect um, literally bombshell from uh, the Ukraine and Russia invasion Mm -hmm. and how prices of everything have spiked. And No Mm -hmm. one's quite sure, but... Climate change is also a thing that's starting to change. We've already seen that uh, tomato uh, production from Spain and Italy is vastly down uh, this year, which has led to price hikes. And so uh, it's a wonderful, uh, not single sort of approach that you mm. can do to uh, <clears throat> increase, well, not actually increase food production, but it's we need to focus on waste. Uh, we waste a terrifying amount of food uh, personally mm. through supermarkets and supply chains and also at the farm. And... Um, But we need to look at the farming methods and there are uh, vast amounts of crop that are grown uh, to provide uh, heating sources that go into biomass or alternatively it's used as cattle feed for example and there are other ways to feed uh, animals and our homes with energy uh, than just growing a crop to then burn it Mm. so uh, there isn't really an answer more of a string of many answers that we need to look at our entire system to make a difference
0: Chris do you think tech will help the answer here, so the challenges you've got in conservation and on um,
3: food production? In order to perform an intervention, you need to understand uh, the system that you're intervening on. So uh, technology provides a method of measuring and monitoring, and you can indeed start performing the appropriate interventions, as uh, Henry and Gil have just been detailing. You can uh, also Uh, Track other things. Yield, uh, as Henry has mentioned, is important. We're all very used to uh, cheap food. Is that necessarily the right position to be in? Yeah, cheap food is...
0: What did somebody say the other day? I I was a farmer. I I get all my information from Countryfile, by the way. Okay, (laughs) so that's... uh... But there was an aspect of it, we have to stop making cheap food, but making food that is um, of value, just because they're still saying it's a certain
3: demographic that buy the cheap food and the richer people could buy. I think um, we used to spend, what, 30% of our family budget on food? Exactly. Mm. Um, now, what is it, 10%? 10.8%. Mm. Uh,
2: right. Um, but, um, mm. yeah, it's you're right, and it's the obsession with cheap food has actually led to uh, more... Uh, nutritionally devalued food. So when you look at the uh, bread, for example, that white bread that you uh, buy from a supermarket that is in a certain branded uh, package, um, they are bleaching these, uh, these grains that they're using to make the flour so that you can take out or ideally take out these uh, pesticides and herbicides that are sprayed on them and you effectively by doing that you just remove all the nutritional value so for it to then meet uh, the food standards association uh, guidelines they have to artificially add more vitamins Mm -hmm. in so the food that we're buying for this budget uh, isn't good for us uh, at all and we need to look at everything as a widespread
0: so gil what i'm getting from two guys sitting either side of you is food's important But from your point of view, conservation's important. How do you balance, do you have discussions with Henry going, I want to plant trees here, and he's going, no, I want to plant carrots here. How do you balance that out in the Belmont Estates? Or, or, because I'm taking it as a role model for other areas to look at, how do you balance the need for conservation and the, the, the aspect of, let's call it, you call it carbon abatement, and the need for Henry to feed me? How do you balance that on the thing? Um, It's the perfect question, I think, because it gets to the
1: complexity and the interconnectedness of the issue. So, uh, and we can uh, attend to all of our agendas with the same actions. So if conventional farming consumes resources, releases carbon, uh, actually there's a significant amount of of carbon release that comes from agriculture, I think it's something like 10% in the UK and it's more uh, taken on a global context. Um, then something like regenerative farming attempts to uh, to rejuvenate and restore, and perhaps even uh, sequester some of that carbon. So, what do you mean by sequester the carbon? So, by promoting soil health, you will uh, so just like the peat uh scenario i gave you earlier with the dried mm. landscape if you are over plowing over farming you've lost your soil health and your soil structure what you're suffering is soil loss through wind and through water and you're exposing the organic matter every time you plow mm-hmm. in that organic matter is sequestered carbon right um, and and it's being uh, uh lost through those uh, though by being opened up by the plow uh, on top of that we have no we're no longer farming a broad range of herbs we, we farm a very narrow group of crops with a quite shallow roots and so what we end up with is soil which is low on on organic matter so not only are we releasing carbon uh, season by season by exposing the soil we're also not really sequestering it at the same rate that mm-hmm. we used to all those natural processes pre-agricultural processes used to sequester um and and the reason it's a this is a nice microcosm for the whole issue, is that the solutions probably all live in the same place. So it's not a question of choosing between nature or or climate action and and carbon sequestration and conservation. The answer is all the same thing. So... Uh, the bigger question is, rather than about the amount of food we produce, is about ultimate food security. So, mm-hmm. as we in the future, we we're going to have some serious problems as our uh, natural systems retreat, like pollinators are increasingly absent there's a tremendous mm. decline in the number of pollinators and yet
0: can I just say not in my garden for some reason we've got bees everywhere so have- if you come along, you could take <laughs> yeah, some fantastic. of them I'll send them over, over to the Belmont I seem to have like you're 10 wrong. bees in my house you're half obviously time. doing something right but uh, if
1: you recall your youth or when you first started driving or cardio in, oh, in your yeah. youth the amount of insects mm-hmm. that used to get killed on your windscreen to the point where you had to put your windscreen washers on yeah. because they turned to concrete yeah, uh, yeah, if yeah. you're not careful and and sometimes you couldn't even read your number plate after a long no. journey and there's uh, it's a very clear demonstration of the decline in those insects and ultimately pollinators that you can go a whole journey now without killing a single insect and, and so this isn't a question about yield and it's not a question about food production versus nature it's, it's a question about can we understand that food production is just a natural process it's reliant on everything from uh, predictable weather patterns to water storage in the soil to pollinators in and mm-hmm. by which I mean insects and yeah. bats and birds uh, and when they're absent it won't be that we have a 10% reduction it'll be
0: that we have no food to consume and so the, the apart from the cheap stuff that we get is so the um, the cheap what do you call it the I'm trying to think with the food they were talking about it the other day the cheap food it's all kind of artificial additives and yeah. we'll, we'll all be living off of like cheesy strings. highly processed yeah, yeah that, I, that yeah. was the one I was looking yeah. at high, high processed
1: food yeah. and increasingly factory produced protein and things like mm. that but but the, if if you then have a look at uh, commercial farming they will n- in order to be resilient from the crises that we're currently facing and will face in the future perhaps caused by geopolitical issues like, like the Ukraine where all of a sudden input prices go through the roof. If you're completely reliant on input prices because you've lost those natural processes, you haven't got uh, soil healthy soil biome or you haven't got pollinators or you, you haven't got enough um, nutrients in the soil to grow your crops, so you have to buy them all in, mm. then that's a very fragile business model. Increasingly, uh, farming systems which attend to those natural processes, they will be able to uh, show that on the bottom line by being resilient to those spikes in input prices. There'll also be an emerging and is an emerging market in something like carbon sequestration, which Mm. their regenerative farming practice practice will deliver. They'll end up with a stack of revenue streams, which will make the food production resilient and their business resilient to the challenges that we're going to face in the future. Um, So it's a win-win-win, and
0: all the answers live in one place. So in the semiconductor industry, we have the challenges of our science-based target initiatives, particularly Scope 3.0 downstream, how does the work of particularly like what Belmont Estates are trying to do with our uh, guests here today, but how does that kind of, how does that help us
3: in the fact of the carbon capture and our science-based target initiatives? Uh, The industry that we work in uh, has had phenomenal benefits for society and uh, some downsides as well. Uh, Now, one of those downsides that's been recognized is our emissions and the emissions that are associated with the business that we're in, hence the science-based targets activity. But if you uh, look at the uh, sustainability targets for many industries, it's not just emissions. It's uh, use of water, it's biodiversity, it's impact on society in general We've obviously made commitments to reduce our emissions in line with one and a half and two degrees C targets like uh, many other companies. Uh, but uh, the industry as a whole could benefit could benefit society by reduced emissions by about a uh, hundred times what we use every year. Um, but it's, it's all about how do we influence this incredibly complicated system? Uh, We're only one small part. Uh, there's lots of other ways of uh, managing these challenges. I
0: just keep getting this picture from the three of you is there there's, there's still an awful lot we've got to do. There's still a lot of areas we could do. I still come back to, I'm not saying there's a tension between uh, Henry and Newgill and there, but I still like, No, you're talking about the peatlands, the dried out peatlands and things like that. The, um, it's generally the dried out peatlands from us looking to farm the lands or is it just because of global warming? What's the reasons the peatlands dried out? And rather than drying them out, is there an advantage of, do we have to wet them again or could we turn them over to a more um, conservation? We have grown more food and maybe looking at other parts of the marine coastland land and preserving our agricultural part. Just, I just find that tension still about we've got to eat, we don't want to ship because of carbon footprint and politicians tend to see things in black and white as a zero or a one. I still don't get that balance. How do you balance that aspect of feeding and and the biodiversity you want to bring back? Because surely that will mean less agricultural land, or does it? Uh, no, not necessarily. So, a pitland is only one example
1: mm-hmm. of a land use mm-hmm. um, or a land degradation caused by human influence. And it, it might be caused by being drained for agricultural use. Uh, to take peatland as an example it was caused by a number of factors so it's degraded and dried because we drained it to either farm or to graze mm-hmm. or because it's no longer holding water in in the uh, usually in the uplands because those uplands were once forested and they were deforested and depopulated for either um, sheep farming or for deer farming predominantly. Mm-hmm. but it's it's a pretty useful um uh, example, which, which could easily be farmland uh, round by us it's lowland so it's um, floodplains that have been drained uh, mm-hmm. and that have been uh, ditched and
0: drained and dredged Somerset isn't it uh, Somerset levels it's like like the Netherlands imagine the Netherlands must face a similar challenge as well yeah, did absolutely it?
1: and and there, there, shouldn't, there is a tension and there is a temptation to be on one side or the other, whether mm. it's food or whether it's climate or whether it's nature. Yeah. But, but that is something we must strive to avoid because the mm. complexity and interconnectedness is how we will, by understanding that, that's how we'll answer these questions. So uh, we have a rewilding project at Belmont. N- not everyone could or should rewild because you can't rewild your way out of these problems. Mm-hmm. But to rewild a landscape is to understand the natural processes which underpin everything in our, in our world, from mm. commerce, to food production, to the provision of medicine, to water quality and cleanliness, to flood mitigation, that really all comes from natural processes. So by using something like our rewilding site, you can take aspects of it, take it back to a conventional, or dare I say, even an, an intensive farming system, and you can underpin it, make it resilient, make it more productive, Uh, produce more protein per acre by understanding the natural processes, which something like our rewilding project helps to shine a light on.
0: Henry, I'm still, you know, we've been talking about here, I'm just thinking about the creation of food and the space. And we've been talking about the peatlands and we've been talking about, but we are an island and the food security, and you mentioned that earlier. I'm still, I'm still not convinced about this. And Gil said, non-tension at all, I'm still not convinced.
2: Explain to me why there isn't attention. So it's it's uh, it's a wonderfully simple answer, in the fact that actually without wilding projects, uh, the rates of biodiversity decline in the UK, we simply won't have uh, pollinators for the crops going forward. So. It's a really uh, short answer that most people can't quite get their head around and some don't want to accept Mm. uh, because bloody uh, large tractors and sprayers and all those sort of things are actually quite a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) But without uh, nature, we won't have food going forward. And I think something that people – we're all obsessed with soil, and rightly so, but we're obsessed with the deterioration of soil that uh, eventually we won't have uh, the nutrients to, to uh, or even the top soil to plant our own crops and they're sort of saying roughly 40 years and I think actually biodiversity is a much higher threat than that it's we won't have pollinators within probably even 20 or 30 years which means that we then won't have food like we've, we we're all worried about and we've actually we've seen uh, the perfect example that the soil uh, on our rewilding project where we have bought it from a, a previous conventional farmer uh, the it's purely a medium there is no Uh, Life in that soil and we can see that from our pigs the pigs come along uh, and they just ignore this sort of 30 to 40 acre uh, patch of land where it has been uh, conventional wheat for the past 30 years and there is no uh, sign of rootling showing showing that there is no life below the topsoil however where there's uh, areas where it's been woodland and there's been uh, pasture for years prior uh, you can see that there's still some life in there so that they're eagerly looking for that and it's it's an interesting, I mean, if you come back away from sort of the vegetable production and you move it back into the uh, the meat-sourced proteins, you you can still get um, protein production from these wilding projects with without- Are you um, talking about cows?
0: Yeah. Well, cows if, is a favorite topic on our, uh, because we, um, we managed to get the fact out is that where the CO2 from the CH4 come from on the cows so I'm glad yeah. you brought up cows again so <laughs> our, we're hoping our audience still remembers podcast 2 no idea we moved it away from cow flatulence to cow chewing
2: perfect so they, yeah. well so there's a fun one which I'm not sure on the numbers of themselves but uh, statistics uh, are showing that beef that is fed using grass, uh, and that's uh, grass that is growing rather than grass that's been uh, mown for silage or haylage, actually produces a lower methane and carbon production per kilo than uh, beef that is then grown on or finished on things such as maize and soya. So arguably it is better for the environment, but it also really helps wilding mm-hmm. projects and bringing back nature. And it's sort of without having uh, the food or humans in theory being at top of the food chain, you will just get this continuous uh, growth of, uh, of animals on the, uh, on the ground, which will then eventually lead to uh, this overgrazing. And so we'll actually be back to exactly where we are, where there's no uh, nature there because we've purely just eaten it all. Mm. Um, and so we have to manage that ourselves because we don't have wolves or wildcats in the UK anymore. Uh, we have to manage it ourselves in a responsible way where well, we can therefore still uh, produce uh, this protein coming off, but also doing it in harmony with nature. Mm. Gail, we talked about peatlands. What
0: other, when we talked about rewilding, what are the kind of, and I'm really interested in the carbon abatement, yeah. but what yeah. kind of, what's the best rewilding? You've got the peatlands wetting, what other, because I read it somewhere in English Heritage were going on about natural, is it? England natural England natural England and they were talking about hedgerows but that's that's not rewilding is it? that's particular so if we park for a moment
1: the phrase rewilding and we just talk about uh, the restoration of natural processes or ecosystem restoration uh, and and the short answer to your question which is the best is none of them are best uh, mm-hmm. or, or each one of them is best in a particular situation or how do you know which one to try and identify which one is best where is to mm-hmm. fundamentally misunderstand the complexity right. and the variance of nature but um, in terms of carbon sequestration drawing down carbon, uh, atmospheric carbon and carbon abatement there are a number of of clearly defined uh, models like uh like peatland restoration mm-hmm. which you can uh, quantify through the peatland code there's sequestration through uh, afforestation and and tree planting which uh, can goes through the woodland carbon code and then there's a number of other methodologies which are which are uh, governing bodies coming through the matrix so there's going to be a seagrass one. There's going to be a salt marsh one. There's a biochar one. There's a uh, enhanced weathering one, and the hedgerow uh, carbon mm-hmm. code actually all all coming through. Um, and and so your landscape your geology, your climate, your particular needs and objectives, whether it's food production or nature production or peculiar and particular mix of the two, will dictate which one of those mechanisms you lean on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the truth is I, I can't give you an answer as to yeah. which one's best because we've... Uh, to take... Uh, I nearly said rewilding then, but to take (laughs) ecosystem restoration as a model, you try and let the landscape lead. What did you call that again? Ecosystem restoration. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So a farm is still an ecosystem. It's just Mm -hmm. a really, really simplified ecosystem. It has one or two inputs and one or two outputs. Um, And what we're trying to do, uh, and what I think is increasingly trying to be done, is to restore those complex ecosystems which which fundamentally undermine our whole, um, underpin our whole life. So... uh, you look at your site, look at the geology, look at all the, the different elements and you try and let nature yeah. lead. Uh, I once asked the uh, owner of Nepp Castle, Charlie Burrell, when he was really near the beginning of his, that's a flagship rewilding project in Sussex. And he was really near the beginning of, of rewilding Nepp Castle, which is the rewilding project in question. And I naively said, oh, excitedly, what outputs are you hoping for? What are you hoping to see? And he sort of wryly tutted and said, Uh, We're not hoping to see anything. We are just interested in recording uh, what happens. And so to shift from a Mm results-focused model Mm -hmm. to a process-focused model Mm -hmm. is definitely the point, and it's definitely quite challenging for us to get our our minds around because we're conditioned to predict results uh, and, in fact, aim for them.
0: Where does our industry play in a part In trying to, and I'm going to use the word rewilding. (laughs) No, or what did you call it? You called it ecosystem restoration. They're all good words. Yeah, I like that one. Expand, because no, what I mean is, where does our industry? Where could we help? Uh, Well, or how can it help
3: us? uh, I think we've already uh, been through this a bit, which is essentially, if you don't know what's going on, how can you intervene? You may be intervening in the wrong ways. The system's incredibly complicated. The importance of our industry is to understand where the, the biggest benefits can be derived. And I'll go back to, let's not just talk emissions, let's talk about impact. Our industry does certain things well, it does certain things uh, not so well. Um, so we should be targeting the uh, biggest benefit to society. And part of the, those benefits derive from environmental impact we have, but also on the general production of food. Where can the projects that we've been discussing help us? Uh, well, if we can understand better, essentially the results of the various systems that are being proposed here, uh, then we can uh, target our efforts rather more on facilitating those, uh, facilitating such projects.
0: It feels to me is that for it all to come together, there has to be a bigger. Holistic approach involving different parts, whether it's governments, whether it's private initiatives, or as we come to near the end of the podcast, what kind of what things would you like to see happen to make you know from our point of view the carbon capture? But what kind of things do
2: you see that you would want to see happen moving forward into the future? So I think um, the role of business actually has a really uh, powerful card that it can play and that that purely is investment so if we look at uh, just take farming for a second the fact that the return on farming for any organisation is actually very, very low. The The idea of profit is a dream. Uh, for anyone who saw uh, Clarkson's Farm uh, and at the end of his his first uh, series, he made something like £42 profit from all that the entire work that he put in through the year. It pays nearly... That nothing. just seems mad, isn't It's is that
0: you yeah. could be quite... A, and it's quite a decent-sized farm and make... It was a few hundred f- acres, yeah. yeah which, and make £42 profit just it, seems to be
2: unsustainable and, and it is it really is unsustainable and the problem is is he's very lucky that he can survive off other incomes <coughs> um, but there are other people who it is purely their livelihood and so i'm not saying that businesses or even government should support farming because actually the the system as a whole needs to change people need to pay more for food but the bit that it's and which about, is a bit of a challenge in this kind of day and age isn't it yeah, to pay more much. for food so how do you work that well, it's a very to touchy a, subject, yeah. but the bit that it will slowly come round to is, is the nature restoration, and it's, it's, it's actually education. So mm. it's getting uh, our generation and generations above and below to realise that nature can play a part in everything from food production to mental uh, health and also to the environmental solutions that we so desperately need. And the problem is, is that farmers who are in the position to be able to deliver this don't have the money to invest. Yeah. There are companies who, in theory, have profits who can invest into this and make a difference. And the the bit that uh, we do at this state that we're actually very proud of is we uh, last year we educated 3,000 children free of charge. Mm-hmm. This year we're on target to educate 4,500 children free of charge. And that's uh, taking uh, children from surrounding areas and immersing them in nature to actually allow them to see what the natural environment looks like and why it is important. Without financial contribution there are farms and estates that simply can't afford to do this and so we are continuing down this problem where no one will actually value the natural environment Mm -hmm. because it's easier to play on a uh, a games console and eat cheap food and so we need people to wake up and learn about what dangers we're heading for gil what do you see the future what would you like to see uh
1: so traditionally Governments move a little bit more slowly than than business Uh, and and businesses will move driven perhaps by bottom line, as as has Mm. to be the case. Otherwise, nothing is very sustainable. So uh, I think what we all want is a transparent, uh, reasonably easy to understand, trustworthy, incredible carbon market. Mm. And what I would particularly like is for that carbon market to acknowledge those other complexities from community to nature Uh, to food production because my fear is that what we have at the moment runs the risk of being a little binary. And so adding that complexity, although it's tremendously inconvenient because uh, it's really nice to understand that if you plant a tree, uh, it will sequester X amount of carbon in its lifetime. You can put that into a spreadsheet. There is more complexity to acknowledge. So uh, as this Market evolves. We've got to bring in those factors of community, that that nature mm. connection that Henry was talking about, that we're so passionate about at Belmont, nature and food, and then we'll end up with something which is hopefully elegant but complex enough to meet the needs that we currently face.
0: Thanks, gentlemen. I think for me that's been really enlightening, and you know Chris and I have been talking about capturing carbon all this time, but you've given us a really insight into the complexity and i well actually i don't think it's complex it seems really simple you put it out in a simple way that everyone should start to look to contribute um thank you for coming along today it's been really interesting yeah thank you thank you very much well, thank you thank for you. inviting me. us